are in seminar room G. This is Ryan Megan, Understanding the Fivefold Ministry from Ephesians 4. So uh, I'm not sure who's over here, but just so you know you're in the right place, that's, that's who you got right now. Just a, one little administrative detail. When you leave, we'd like you to go ahead and exit right, my right, your left. So these two doors on my right, again, working with Ryan. He started, didn't you start a house of prayer in Indianapolis? No, St. Louis. St. Louis, sorry. <laughs> right. Ryan will tell you what he does, but I, I'd like to just mention a couple of things about who he is. What I um, love about Ryan is that he has a, um, a passion for Jesus. He loves to worship. He loves to sing. Uh, he's managing and directing the sound department, and he, I hear repeatedly overflow of his heart saying, oh, I just want to be in the prayer room. And I love, I love him for that. I love working with him because of that. I just love his heart for the Lord. And uh, he's an excellent and a, uh, more than excellent manager of people and of processes. But again, what uh, draws me to Ryan and to his um, family, his beloved family. Oh, his wife is back there, Sandra. Beautiful, beautiful woman of God. I don't know her, but she's a beautiful woman of God. She walks in at grace and humility that's unusual, I think. Anyway, um, you will, he agrees. You will enjoy Ryan. I think as he speaks, you'll find that he's a very good teacher. He's very clear, very concise, and he's a joy. Uh, he's a joy to have with us at the House of Prayer. He just came real recently, like a year ago. So I'm going to pray and give this over to Ryan. Father, I thank you for bringing us here today. I thank you for your grace, and I ask that you would send more. I ask for the spirit of revelation. I ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Christ, and I ask you give Ryan your words today in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Terry. I want to go ahead and pray myself, and then we'll just jump right in. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you give us in this room right now a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you open our eyes and open our ears, that we would hear from you. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come now in Jesus' name and declare the Son and declare his plans for the church. We long for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter 4, which will be the, the uh, text that we'll spend the most time in because it's on the title of the breakout, so I have nowhere else to go. Um, specifically, verses 11 to 16, while you're turning there, is there anyone who does not have a handout that wants one? If you raise your hand, an usher will get it to you, but I think you all have them. So Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is speaking about what Jesus did after he ascended. It says that he gave gifts to the church. It names those gifts. And then it tells us what they're supposed to do and how long we have them for. Before we dive into that, you might ask yourself the question, why is this a topic at the One Thing Conference? This sounds more like a Bible school class. 
Understanding the fivefold ministry. I mean, it sounds like some technical theological debate that three guys that you don't want to be around would yell about at each other in a room. There are not apostles. Yes, there are. I don't know. So why are we why are we talking about it here at one thing? I mean, this is where you come for really loud, good worship music and people screaming into a microphone telling you to love Jesus more. Right? That's what I came for. <laughs> That's how I got hooked. That's why I moved here. Um, and so it seems out of place at first. You look down the list like, what? Well, here's why. I don't know if you caught it. Were you here last night? Who was here for Mike's session last night? He talked about how the Lord is raising up a young adult church planning movement across the earth. Well, that's just a neat 2006 way of saying Ephesians 4.11. What is a young adult church planning movement but apostolic, prophetic leaders going to unreached places with evangelists, getting them saved, establishing churches and ministries, and appointing pastors and teachers to lead the flock. That's a young adult church planning movement. It's Ephesians 4.11. And so if you're in that room last night and he says, you know, any of you who think you've got any part in that, stand up. How many of you stood up? Go ahead and stand up now. Well, good. You came to the right seminar. I got the right audience. So you can sit down now. I'm not, we're not going to sing. Um, <laughs> I love to sing, but without a piano, it just doesn't happen. So you're, you're here, and I'm talking about this because this is the grounding that we need if we're going to understand a young adult church planning movement, if we're going to understand a worldwide apostolic movement that brings in a harvest of a billion souls before the Lord returns. The only way that happens is when we understand and walk in what the Bible tells us about how the church is built and how the church is brought to maturity. That's why we're talking about it. Some of you come from backgrounds that say there are no more apostles and prophets, they passed away. Some of you come from backgrounds that say we love apostles and prophets and there's 400 of them and they visit our church every week. Some of you have no opinion about it. We could spend the whole session debating the opinions. I don't want to. Um, We want to gain our understanding from Scripture. We don't want to get into he said, she said, and he wrote a book, and they said it on TV, and my pastor says that none of that matters. When we stand before Jesus, he's not going to hold us to account for what the pastor said or for what I said or for what anyone else said. He's going to hold us to account for what the Bible said. And if you've been entrusted with a stewardship in what God is doing in the end of the age and you stand before him and he tests your works and he says, what did you do in your lifetime on the earth? The answer can't be, well, I did what my pastor said. It's got to be, I did what your word said according to the pattern it has. So that's why we're talking about this. My point with all that was, we just care what the Bible says. We don't care about the great raging debates through history for their own sake. We only care what Scripture says. So what does Scripture say about the fivefold ministry? Well, it's pretty clear. We already just read through it, Ephesians 4.11. The the real question is, are there apostles and prophets today? Nobody disputes that there's evangelists. Everybody looks at Billy Graham and says, evangelist, yay. 
nobody disputes that there are pastors. Everyone here comes from a church of some kind that has a pastor of some kind. Everyone says, yay, pastors. Everyone knows that there's teachers because, you know, we have Bible schools and they have teachers. Yay, teachers. The only two things in dispute are apostles and prophets. That alone should be the big tip-off. We should be able to end the seminar right there and say, it's pretty obvious that God gave all five. If three are still here, two still are too. But let's go through it just so that, not so much because I want to convince you, chances are you're not here because you don't believe in this. But in your life, as you pursue it, you're going to run across well-meaning, sincere lovers of God, as well as insincere false people, who are going to try to tell you, no, you can't be called to the apostolic ministry. There is no such thing in the earth today. And then they'll go down their list of five reasons why, and they will attempt to steal from your heart the very thing that God placed there. Not because they're mean or evil or want to, but because they're, they lack knowledge, they lack understanding. So I want to give you a little bit of knowledge and understanding. Mostly, I want to give you a table of contents to some that you'll go study later. How can we know if the offices of apostle and prophet are still here today? Well, we read Ephesians 4.13. There's a neat word at the beginning. It says, until. How long did Jesus give these gifts to the church for? He gave them until. It's almost as if Paul was looking ahead and thought, I bet they'll be debating this sometime. I better give them a clue as to how long it's around for. Until we attain to the unity of the faith. Let's look at that. If you just look around the body of Christ, wherever you're from, big city, little city, Midwest, North, South, East, West, every street corner, there's a church on this side of the street corner, and a church on this side of the street corner, and they don't agree on anything, and they call each other names. Nice sanctified names, but names. I mean, we can just be real about it. Most Baptists don't like most Charismatics, and frankly, most Charismatics think most Baptists probably don't really know God very well. I mean, really, let's just be honest. That that goes on, right? Is that only in St. Louis, where I'm from? No, it goes on in Oklahoma, too. That's where I went to school. Whew. The Bible Belt's a fun place. How many are from the Bible Belt? You really know what I'm talking about. Whatever church you go to is the best one in town, and all the others, you're not sure where they're ending up. I'm kidding. You're probably not like that. But clearly, we have not attained to the unity of the faith. Clearly. You look at Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Bible Church, Charismatic, Pentecostal, We don't agree on anything. We don't even agree on the atonement between all of those people. We don't even agree about what was accomplished on the cross. Was healing purchased in the cross? scripture and scripture is closed well half these guys didn't write scripture i don't have a book of andronicus in my bible but he was an apostle 
So anyway, the point there is, there's a ton of these apostles, and in, in technical theological language, we call them ascension gift apostles, because they're the gifts that God gives to the church after Jesus ascends to heaven, hence ascension gift apostles. That distinguishes them from the 12 so that no one can say, you're a heretic, you said there's 13 apostles. No, we're saying that there's a host of apostles. There have been down through the ages. Martin Luther, in my opinion, was probably an apostle. I say probably because I wasn't there and he had a couple shady things at the end, what with you know the Jews and stuff. But uh, but he he had some amazing work there in the in the middle that whole salvation by faith thing. So hopefully we've given you a handle on yes there are apostles and what apostles are and are not in terms of like classifying them and why we're not saying some bizarre new doctrine when we say there's an apostle now what is an apostle like and what does an apostle do first of all the character of an apostle the most important thing i can possibly say about this is that apostles are humble and meek and lowly If you met one, you wouldn't think, wow, they're really probably an apostle. You might, but even if you thought it, oh, I'll go ahead and say it. They probably wouldn't have a business card. (laughs) I just have to say it because we love, I love that there is a movement in the earth that says that there are apostles and prophets that God is raising up. But we want to look at what Scripture says apostles are like. And apostles are not domineering and controlling. They don't have nicer houses and nicer cars than the people they're apostling. They don't have... Yeah, I'll just stop there. Apostles are the servant of all because they are patterned after Jesus, the great apostle. Mark 10, 42-45. Jesus calls the disciples to Himself and says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Here Jesus is instructing apostles on how to be apostles. It's a really key verse for the apostolic movement. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And you can hear the apostles in the background saying, whoa, it's not what we signed up for. You've got to explain this to us. Why, Jesus, is it like this? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Many of you in this room feel like you're called to some form of apostolic ministry, or you probably wouldn't be here. You all stood up. Church planting is apostolic ministry, even if your denomination doesn't like that term. If you think you're called to apostolic ministry, learn this verse and gauge your life by this verse. Are you serving Are you going low? Are you doing the things other people don't want to do? 
Are you doing the things you don't want to do? Are you in it for others or in it for you? Deep within every one of us is this broken linkage between our calling that we believe we have from God and our identity and worth and value. Most of us, including me, are pursuing our calling not because we want to honor God with obedience and serve other people, but because deep down we think if I could only achieve whatever, then when I laid my head down on the bed at night, I wouldn't feel empty and sad and broken and alone. Got real heavy suddenly, didn't it? But that's what most of us are doing. Most of us are running hard after our calling primarily because we think if we achieve that calling, then we'll feel fulfillment, then we'll have happiness, then we'll have friends, then we'll have success, then we'll have adoring masses of people around us. We never want to put it in those words because once we do, we we just know that's sick and wrong. No, that's not what I want. Of course I don't want that. I know that's unbiblical. But it's in us. It's rooted in us. And it's hard to get rid of. And Jesus strikes at it and says, look, I've made you 12 apostles. Here's your job description. Serve. Don't be served. Don't get your own things out of this. Empty yourself. Over and over, Paul describes his ministry as being a bond slave poured out like a drink offering unto death. What did Paul achieve in his calling by the end of his life? He was under house arrest. All of his friends had deserted him. His churches were in disarray and doctrinal failure, and he died. Poured out as a drink offering. But at the end, he says, I know there's a crown stored up for me. I ran the race. I was faithful. I didn't do it for me. I didn't do it for glory. I didn't do it so that I could fulfill my calling. I did it because the one I love, Jesus Christ, loved those people to death. And if I'm to be an apostle of Jesus, I will love them unto death. Really good sermon. I don't live it. mostly I'm up here because I just really like to teach. It's fun. I feel good when I teach. Most of why I'm pursuing my calling and teaching has nothing to do with being obedient to that calling and has everything to do with the fact that I'll feel a little bit of a fun buzz when I get done because it was cool. It was fun. It was a good teaching. A couple people said amen and I feel special now. Guess what? Whatever measure of that is in me, is what the Bible calls wood, hay, and stubble. And when I stand before the Lord and I say, but Lord, I taught at that one thing conference and some of those kids actually like went on to become apostles and did great deeds. I mean, that's got to count for something in terms of my eternal reward. And he says, yeah, but I looked at your heart and 80% of it was because you thought it would be fun and cool. And that 80% is wood, hay, and stubble, and it burns in the judgment. The good news is, 20% of it maybe, is because I love God, and because I love Him, I care deeply about your destiny in Him, and that 20% will stand. Is it 80-20? Is it 90-10? Is it 60-40? I don't know. I'll go ask Him later. (laughs) I'm really worried about the answer. I'm really serious though. If we, if we look deep inside, most of us 
are doing most of the things we do for us in one arena or another, whether it's for our wealth, whether it's for friendship, whether it's for glory, whether it's for security, whether, you know, there's all these little motivations, but they're still revolving around us. And the call to be an apostle says that you must die to that and revolve around Jesus and the people he died for and become poured out even as Jesus was poured out. That's tough. Does it make you rethink whether you want to be apostolic? Look at the 12. Look at what happened to them. They were martyred. They were beaten. Paul describes and defends his apostleship in 2 Corinthians. He establishes the church at Corinth. Preaches to them. They get saved. He establishes the church. Appoints elders. Writes the first letter to him and corrects a bunch of stuff. By the time he writes the second letter, they don't even think he's an apostle anymore because these other guys who were flashier and cooler and had a more fun message came through town. And the Corinthians latched on to that group and said, Paul's so boring and not cool, we don't even think he's an apostle anymore. And Paul writes to him to defend his apostleship in 2 Corinthians. And his defense revolves around two things. One, Jesus Christ appeared to me in the flesh and appointed me an apostle. Two, everywhere I go, I get beaten within an inch of my life by people who hate me because of the power and the message that I carry. His defense of his apostleship is not that it won him friends and gained him a nice life, but the exact opposite. His defense of his apostleship was nobody likes me and they try to kill me every city I go to. That's his defense. This is how you know I'm a real apostle. Even the churches don't like me. Read 2 Corinthians. I mean, his defense is like, I get shipwrecked. I get thrown over walls. I get beaten 39 times. I get stoned and left for dead. This is how you know I'm an apostle. Oh, and sometimes I raise the dead and Jesus appeared to me and stuff. But the, the, the majority of his defense is given to the fact that he's laying his life down and losing things, not gaining them by being an apostle. Okay, I belabored that point enough. What else about the character of an apostle? I just have to ask, is that a hand for a question or a hand to say thank you, God? Yeah. Yes, we will get to that. I have three other points before I get there. If after I cover that you still have a question, just go ahead and raise your hand again. An apostle has to meet the biblical requirements to be an elder in the church. Those requirements are 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. It's a whole list of character issues that are required for leadership in the church. They're very unpopular. Most churches ignore them. But they're God's character standard for leadership in the church. Wow, really? Rats, I only have 10 minutes. I have seven more pages of notes. Okay, eight more minutes of apostle and two on prophets. Um, 
<laughs> I'll stay a little. I don't I don't know what the rules are. They might come out with the shepherd's crook and drag me off the stage, but Apostles have to meet those criteria. Why? Because they're foundational leadership ministries in the body of Christ. And God said, if you're going to be a foundational leadership ministry in the body of Christ, then you have to meet these requirements. There's a whole bunch of them. Your household has to be in order. You have to be the husband of one wife. You have to not love money. You have to not be a drunkard. You have to not be malicious and slanderous and a gossip. So every single one of us now feels disqualified, right? That's the point. (laughs) But they really do have to meet those. (laughs) We really have to meet those. They must be patient. 2 Corinthians 12, in the same defense of his apostleship, Paul actually says that one of the signs of a true apostle is this. He says, look, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all patience. That's one of the great signs of a true apostle. Read through First and Second Corinthians and the labor he goes through for the Corinthian church, even when they abandon him as an apostle, even when they ignore his discipline and correction and leadership, and he labors and he labors and he labors with all patience. Must bear up under persecution and misunderstanding. Here's part of his defense in Second Corinthians 6. I'll just read through it. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. And it just goes on and on. As dying, yet behold we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. Home in on that one. Paul says, I'm poor. I do my ministry as though I'm poor so that I can make many rich. as having nothing, yet possessing all things. You read through that and you think, how does he not quit? I mean, after the third time they stone you and leave you for dead, wouldn't you be tempted to say, I'm going to go and learn carpentry. (laughs) I will build nice tables for people who give me money. How does Paul keep going? He bears up, even as Jesus did, under persecution and misunderstanding operates in signs, wonders, and miracles. Second Corinthians 12.12, part of Paul's defense of his apostleship, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all patience by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul says, you're wondering who the real guys are. There's the flashy new guys who came through town, and there's me. And you've got to decide, because I'm telling you bad things about not sinning, and they're telling you things about how it doesn't matter if you sin, and you're going to have to pick one of us, and how do you choose? Look for the true signs of an apostle. Look for the character, the patience, and look for the signs and wonders and miracles. What was uh, the exact question? Because this is an important one. 
Aha, that's a really good question. The question was, what is a sign, what is a wonder, and what is a miracle? Um, you know what? How about if I skip ahead, and if you want to catch me afterwards, we can talk more about that. Establishes local churches. Apostles are not parachurch ministries. Apostles do not build their own little networks and empires. Apostles establish local churches. And then they appoint elders who run those local churches. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 and 10, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul says, my ministry is that I raise up local churches. You just go through the book of Acts, and he, uh, the, the Ephesian church, the Corinthian church, I mean, just on and on. This is what he does. He goes to a town, and he builds churches. He doesn't build the Paul apostolic network that you can join yourself to for $10 a month. Which is not what our web stream is, by the way. That's not why I said $10 a month. Had a whole other thing in mind. The web stream is not an apostolic network, and I encourage you to subscribe to it. And I get no money out of the deal, so I just think it's good. Establishes and sets ministries in order. Acts 14.23, Paul finishes up one of his missionary journeys. He's raised up several churches through all of, uh, all of Asia Minor. And it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul didn't just like leave them and say, I'm your head guy since I'm the one who started your church. He says, I'm an apostle. My job is to build churches and then set leadership in place over them. And so he appoints elders in every place. So apostles do those things. Some of you feel called to build churches, to go to unreached places. Paul said this marvelous thing. I love what he said. He said, I go where the gospel has not been preached, for I don't want to build on another man's foundation. Some of you, that burns in your heart to find an unreached group somewhere, Tibet or I don't know any other unreached people. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't read that 1040 window book very well. Um, well, they all have names I can't say. We, uh, little side story. We, we had this like stack of like 10,000 sheets of paper from some missions organization at the IHOP we did in St. Louis. And every single day we took one of those 10,000 sheets of paper and every intercession set, we spent one cycle praying for the so-and-so people of the so-and-so. And we never could pronounce any of them. I mean, they were all those ones like from like, you know, the, the Balkans, maybe? I don't know. I don't even know where they were. I'd look at the map and be like, what? And I'd be the prayer leader, and I've got to come up with something to say. Lord, the... Well, you know what I'm looking at. <laughs> really happened. It really did. And he really knew what I was looking at. Some of you, that burns in you, though, to go to an unreached place... Be the first to share the gospel. See people saved and establish a church. That's called being an apostle. Okay, here's what we're going to do because I don't know my exact rules. They may actually kick me out. Will, will, will they kick me out? 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So here's what we'll do. I'm going to actually do my little closing now, even though we've only gotten through one of the five-fold ministries. And after I close, anyone who needs to, wants to, is welcome to flee and tell people about how dramatic this was. Anyone who wants to can stay, and I'll continue on through the prophet part. So I think everyone's pretty comfortable with evangelist pastors and teachers. We all know some of each of them. Um, but so I'll cover profit after I close and let people who want to go, go. And there's a hand right there. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No. As a matter of fact, it does not mean apostles have to be a man. Um, Elders don't have to be a man either, probably. I don't want to really go heavy into that, except here's the thing. In Romans 16 or 15, wherever that was, Um, where's my list of people who are called apostles? Where did you go? There we go. Romans 16, 7. Junius was most likely a woman. There's some debate within the Greek scholar community over whether that's a feminine or masculine word, but the majority of them believe it's feminine and that it was a woman. And so Paul says Junius, a girl, is a prophet an apostle. So I'm just going with Paul on that. And if you want more information, there's like two or three books in our bookstore, at least back at the missions base, all about women in ministry and how we reconcile certain verses with certain other verses that are confusing to all of us. Because you've got women can't talk in church. And then you've got when women prophesy in church, here's what they should do. But if a woman prophesies in church, isn't that talking? But a woman can't talk in church. I'll just admit I'm confused and have no answer to that, except that it's not nearly as straightforward on either side as we want to make it. It's confusing to me, and so read a book. (laughs) I don't even, since I don't know what I think, I don't even know what book to tell you to read. (laughs) I know there's books on both sides. So here's what I want to do. I know I didn't talk about prophets at all, but surely some of you in this room feel like you have a prophetic gifting and may indeed be called to the office of the prophet. Some of you feel called to the office of the apostle. Or that's just such a scary thing to say, the office of the apostle. So we always water it down and say apostolic ministry. Whatever. Some of you feel called to this thing that I just described where you've got character and you plant churches and raise them up and appoint elders. You can call that apostle or apostolic or church planting. Um, Some of you feel called to be evangelist pastors and teachers. So what I want to do is have those of you who feel called to any of those stand up. I don't have a music so we'll have old school ministry time every eye closed every head bowed so i want to speak directly to you for one minute and tell you this the bible says this is real and it does not matter what your mother or your father or your pastor or your youth leader or i or mike bickle or whoever your hero is says it doesn't matter The Bible says it's real. Do not let a puny human being steal God's calling out of your heart. Don't let it happen. On the other hand, don't get bitter at the puny little human beings because that's the equivalent of having it stolen. It doesn't go well if you get bitter at them all. But don't let yourself be talked out of it. 
The Bible says this is real. The church is in its greatest need ever in history of these offices, these ministries, to bring her to the place God calls her to be, to prepare her for the crisis that is around the corner. You can go to one of the other seminars and find out why I can say that boldly. I don't have time to defend it, but I'll just say it. There's a crisis, a worldwide crisis around the corner. Fully one half of the human race will be killed in this crisis. Fully one half. Currently, that would be 3.5 billion human beings killed in three and a half years in this crisis. We call it the Great Tribulation. It's around the corner. Around the corner might mean 40, 50, 60 years, but that's around the corner for real. Really around the corner. History flies by. And can the church be ready for what's coming in 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 years without these ministries in place? No. This is why God gave these to the church is to bring her to maturity, to bring her to fullness, to bring her to unity, to bring her to the point where she is all that God called her to be so that she can stand in that day. And so I just adjure you and exhort you, do not let go of your belief in being called to this. I believe I'm called to one of these ministries. doesn't matter which one. I don't care and I don't want anyone to know. I've believed it since 1995. It's 11 years. There's no evidence of it. Nobody recognizes it. Most people try to talk me out of it. I learned a long time ago to stop telling people about it because it doesn't go over well. But I've clung to it. And some days it's harder to cling to than others. But I will not let go of this because I know it's in the Bible and I know God called me to it. And if nobody else believes it, it doesn't matter because God believes it and says it and calls people to it. So I just want to pray for you. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus that in this moment right now in this room that you would confirm callings, that you would confirm callings by your Spirit right now Lord, for the ones who've struggled over months and years and have almost let it slip, aren't even sure if they could really be called to it, aren't even sure if they could ever qualify, aren't even sure if it really exists, I ask that You confirm it right now by Your Spirit. That You touch them in a significant way right now. Even as You did for Paul, Lord. On the road to Damascus, you revealed yourself to him. You made known your calling to him. You sent a prophet to him to perform a miracle, to open his blind eyes and confirm his calling. Lord, I ask even for these that you would send prophets to confirm their calling. That you would put divine appointments in their way, even at this conference, walking down a hallway, Someone would stop them and say, I don't know why, but I believe God wants me to tell you, you're called to this ministry. 
Lord, I ask you for confirmation, for strengthening, for affirmation of this calling. We ask you for the gifts that you've promised. Give us apostles. Give us prophets. Give us evangelists and pastors and teachers. Release the gifts to the church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I am perfectly willing to talk some about prophets, so I just like to talk. But you are dismissed in the formal way to go do whatever, wherever, however. And if enough of you stay, I will talk a little about prophets. It looks like enough of you are staying. Apostles. It's all the same rationale and reasoning. People always say, well, there's no more prophets because Ezekiel did this and the canons closed and there's just all these arguments and they don't mean anything because the Bible says there are. On the other hand, we want to be able to know why we believe what we believe and know why it's not error. And so there's orders of prophets. Of course, Jesus is the prophet. Moses prophesies to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 18.15. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. It's a messianic prophecy. Jesus was the prophet of all ages to Israel and to humanity. Then there were another category of prophets, the prophets of Scripture. These are the guys who actually wrote books of the Bible. The Bible is closed and no one gets to write any more books. Let me just be clear about that. Present-day apostles don't write Bible. Present-day prophets don't write Bible. So there's these prophets of Scripture. Isaiah, he writes 66 books of the most amazing stuff. No one will be like Isaiah again in terms of writing Scripture. It just won't happen. A couple people tried. All these odd religions came out of it. It's bad. Then there is the stuff that really still exists. There's three, yay four, but I'll only do three, levels of this prophetic gifting. The one we're interested in is the office of prophet, which you might call the highest level. Not highest in terms of importance or value, but just like in terms of amount of gifting and revelation and authority that comes in it. But we'll start with the spirit of prophecy. It's true that all may prophesy, yet not all are prophets. So what does that mean if all may prophesy, but not all are prophets? There is a spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19.10 says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's a sense in which every single believer can prophesy. They can be guided by the Holy Spirit to say something that testifies of the truth of who Jesus is or how Jesus feels or what Jesus says about something. And it's prophecy and it carries weight and power and it's real. But that happening does not make someone a prophet. Further into the realm of the prophetic is the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 5 all talk about prophetic gifting and how it operates. Basically, a gift of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy comes on someone and then goes away. That's why sometimes you prophesy and sometimes you don't. Because it comes, it goes. The gift of prophecy is an actual gift given to you, resident within you. 
Paul tells Timothy at one point to stir up the gift that is within you. The gifts of the Spirit are deposits that are placed in us that we actually have an element of control over. Now that sounds really weird. How can you control a gift of the Spirit? I don't mean like we can twist his arm and get what we want out of the deal. But there's a reality that if we actually have a gift of prophecy, it's there whether we like it or not. It's there whether we use it or not. And we have the option to stir it up at any time and use it. I have a a friend in St. Louis who at least has the gift of prophecy. I would even venture to say that she is a prophet. S. To be whatever, feminine about it. Um, and she she always held these meetings to teach people how to prophesy. And, and you could always tell, she would just instruct people, this is how we're going to find out if you really have a gift of prophecy. We're all going to stand up, pray in tongues for five minutes, I'm going to point at you and you're going to prophesy. And half the people would just be like, eh. A quarter of them would actually do it, but not on a consistent basis. And there'd be this group of people who the more they did it, the more they realized it was just within them. And, it, and since it operates by faith, Romans 12:6 says if we uh, prophesy, we should do it according to the proportion of our faith. If you really have faith that you have this gift of prophecy and you really have it, it works. Because it's there, because it was a gift. It's like if I give a gift to my wife, she can really use it any time, whether or not I'm telling her to use it. You know what I mean? Again, that sounds weird, like, oh no, could someone use the gift of prophecy and it not be God? And get a get a good book on prophecy to sort all that out. But yes, there is an element of control given to the person with the gift of prophecy where they can just prophesy. Most of our prophecy teams who've been wandering around, if you ran into any of them, most of them have a gift of prophecy on command. You can walk up to them and say, Prophesy to me, and they'll go, Lord, what are you saying? Boom, prophecy, and it'll be right. It's like, how on earth do you do that? If you're asking how on earth, then either you don't know that you have a gift of prophecy or you don't have one. I don't know how you find out except to try it. Go to a good prophecy place and and uh, practice. It's a gift. You can use it more or less. And the more you use it, the better you get at it. It's kind of weird. And it's trippy. Like, why did he make it that way? If you don't use it, it shrivels up a little. And if you use it more, it gets stronger and better. It's just weird. I mean, really, it is. It's just an odd way. He he is so odd. The whole prayer thing, you know, like I loved what Matt said at the end of his, his meeting in here, which none of you heard, but he said the thing that Mike always says. He says, what what kind of way to run a kingdom is this? I sit in a chair and I tell you what you already told me that I was supposed to tell you. Isn't that a big waste of time? God says, no, it's just how I run the kingdom. And this is how he runs prophecy. So anyway, people with gifts of prophecy, that does not make them a prophet. What is a prophet? The office of the prophet is the highest expression of the prophetic ministry. People who are in the office of the prophet typically are are like, nearly constantly in the prophetic realm. Maybe you've all heard the story. There's a well-known prophetic guy who went to the restaurant and had to ask to move to the, you know, the far back corner table because no matter if he wanted to or not, he just knew everything about all the people around him. And it was just exhausting all the time, always on. Signs and wonders everywhere he goes. 
People get healed. People, I mean, like crazy, crazy stuff. People who operate in the office of the prophet often, when they prophesy, have signs and wonders that confirm their prophecies. You go through the Bible and look at all of the biblical prophet guys, and this is how it went. They'd go up to the king and be like, okay, they're going to come and decimate your country because you're in sin. And the king would say, how do I know that you're from God? And he would say, because in three days there will be a flood. And if there is not, then so let it be done to me even as I have said. It's the great Bible phrase I love. And so the flood would come and the king would be taken aback and say, wait, that... So he said the flood, and it happened. So the whole invade my country and kill us all is seeming a little likely about now. I mean, it sounds funny, but this is like reality. This is why there is an IHOP. I don't know how many of you have the prophetic history CDs. If you don't, go buy them at the bookstore. IHOP exists because of two, three, three specific prophets who gave prophecies about IHOP and we believed them. Well, I say we. Uh, Johnny come lately. I just lumped myself in. Mike, back in 1982, believed them because, well, I mean, I believed them once I heard them. It was just more like 1996. But um, they would come and say, okay, the Lord's going to raise up night and day prayer and you're going to lead it and he's going to call young people and so you need to start prayer meetings every day. And, I mean, Mike's just, Kind of like us, like, and how do I know that you're not a nut? You know, I mean, like, because they had some odd personalities. I'm not saying that's part of the office. I actually think you don't have to be odd to be a prophet. I think that's just some culture in there. But, you know, you kind of like, what? how can you tell me that this is going to happen? What evidence do you give me that this is for real? And so they would tell him things like, on this date, in this city, there will be a flood. And there was. Ooh. Well, so maybe the whole 24-7 prayer thing's real. I mean, this happened over and over and over again. Earthquakes to the date. Floods to the date. The, the, the biggest one we have a prophecy at IHOP, the biggest one to me, the one that matters the most to me in this season for some reason, was this prophecy that there would be 5,000 full-time intercessors at IHOP that IHOP would get to 500, and when we got to 500, there'd just be something that would happen, and in a day, whatever that means in prophetic language, 24 hours or a little bit of time or whatever, we'd go to 5,000. That's just unthinkable. How can you believe in that? He says, and here's your sign for it. The Mississippi River will flood on this date in 1980-something or other, And that's your sign that this is a true prophecy. The date comes, the river floods, and the newspaper headline in the Kansas City Star is 5,000 people find a new home in a day. Overnight. So, I mean, like, at that point you think, okay, I can put more stock in this thing. And this is the realm that the office of the prophet moves in consistently. Someone with the gift of prophecy can do this here and there because God can just do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. I mean, he can use a donkey if he has to or wants to for his own purposes. But the office of the prophet, it's not a hit and miss kind of thing. Let me qualify. I don't mean consistently as in perfect and they never miss. I mean consistently as in 
This happens a lot. And they miss some here and there. But it happens a lot. Are there prophets in the New Testament? Really quick, I'll give you a couple of scriptures. You can go read yourself. Acts 15.32 Judas and Silas, not Judas the bad guy, Judas the good guy, and Silas are called prophets. Acts 13.1-4 There was a group of unnamed prophets in the church at Antioch. Acts 11.27 there was a group of unnamed prophets that went from Jerusalem and ministered to a bunch of places. Acts 11, 28, and 21, 10, and 11, Agabus was called a prophet. Funny thing, Agabus got it wrong, and he's still called a prophet in the Bible. Just in case any of you really wonder about this, how can a prophet not be 100% correct and still be a prophet? Here it is, Agabus prophesies to Paul, here's what's going to happen when you go to Jerusalem. This, that, and the other thing. Now, overall, it happened, but he got the details completely wrong. Agabus said the Jews would bind Paul and throw him in prison. But the Jews didn't. They tried to kill him. The Romans came and bound Paul and hauled him away to prison. Agabus was wrong. He got a detail wrong. Do you know what the Christian media would do to a prophet today who got a detail like that wrong? They would, false prophet, heretic, leading the flock astray. But the Bible says Agabus is a prophet and he missed some details. If God's okay with that, then I have to be. Which is very uncomfortable, isn't it? Because you want them to just, I want black and white cut and dried. None of it is. So Agabus was a prophet who missed it a little bit. And so that's what we mean when we say prophet. We don't mean Isaiah. He's going to write scripture. We don't mean, you know, Ezekiel. We mean, the only reason we don't mean them is the writing of Scripture. As a matter of fact, there's these two guys coming called the two prophets. They're in the book of Revelation. They do the Elijah thing where they call down fire and people get killed. Remember the story, Elijah's up on the mountain and the king wants to know where Elijah go because I need to talk to him. And so he sends his army guy with a little group of army guys and they get to the mountain. They say, Elijah, come on down. The king wants to talk to you because you're a prophet. And Elijah says, if I'm a prophet, let fire fall from heaven and consume you. <laughs> fire falls and kills them all. It really happened. Which raises a lot of questions that God doesn't answer. It's like he wants us to be uncomfortable sometimes. He wants there to be mystery in it all and for us to have to press harder into him because there's weirdness all around. And sometimes Agabus misses it, but he's still a prophet. So what do you do? You go to God. He planned it this way. So the army guys come a second time. Elijah, king, talk to you. If I'm a prophet, let fire fall. <laughs> they die. So the third army guy comes, and by now he's got to be really worried, and he somehow gets out of it diplomatically. He's like, no, I know you're a true prophet. Don't kill me. I'm on your side. I'm just the messenger. And Elijah has mercy and says, okay, I'll go talk to the guy. Well, here's the deal. That was not just Old Testament for Elijah. Revelation, two prophets will stand in Jerusalem, and at their word, fire will fall from heaven and consume their adversaries. And at their word, the heavens will be shut, just like Elijah again. And at their word, the heavens will open, it will rain. Just like Elijah. 
So whenever we say that we don't have Bible prophets anymore, the only thing we mean is that we don't have prophets who write the Bible anymore. Everything else prophets did, prophets do, including fire from heaven. It's weird. It makes you not want to be around a prophet too much because, I mean... I mean, it's just weird. This stuff is in the Bible and we want to tame it and we want to like somehow like clean it up and make it presentable. But it's there and it's real. Question. And then another. 